Well, if you have your Bibles this morning, uh, take and turn with me to the book of Numbers, chapter 21. We're going to start in Numbers 21 as we work our way over to John, chapter 12. Uh, And if you do not have a copy of God's Word, there's one in the back of the pew in front of you, and you're welcome to use that this morning during the message. And then if you would like that, you can take it with you so that you can have your own copy of God's Word. So if you're using that Bible uh, and aren't familiar with how it's set up, uh, that'll be on page number 129. And there's also a table in the contents in front which will guide you uh, through your study of Scripture. So uh, we invite you to join along with us and read as we study God's Word together. Anybody recognize this? You, you, ever, you ever seen one of these? This is the, uh, the infamous Staples Easy Button. If you remember a couple years ago, they had a commercial series where people would encounter a problem in the office or need an office supply or something like that. And there was this issue, and somebody would walk up and go, That was easy. And their solution was magically changed. You know, so it's great how that, that so quickly worked out uh, in the commercials. And a person at my, my first church back in Kentucky, that when those were out, they bought me one of these and said, you know what, ministry I think sometimes has some challenges, so maybe you need one of these, right? Uh, so they gave me this, and it sits on my desk. And, and shortly after I got it, I had a couple that came in uh, in the midst of a very trying situation in their marriage. Uh, he had been unfaithful. Uh, his wife was struggling with forgiveness and healing and trust and just all these sort of things. So they came in, just poured out their hearts and, and walked through what was taking place. They kind of finished and, and kind of came to a point of, of just kind of sitting there. And I said, oh, I got this taken care of. And I reached over and I grabbed this thing and went, that was easy. And you know what? Nothing changed in the midst of their situation. They looked at me like I had lost my mind and went right back to weeping and walking through what they were dealing with. And I thought... Well, maybe you gotta gotta you know use it a little bit, get it broken in. Maybe it just you know not not working properly. So so a guy came in a few weeks later. I uh, had been recently diagnosed with cancer, and he was just reeling with all the the information he was receiving and the challenges that lay ahead for treatment. And he had these fears and these worries about his family and his children. Uh, he was also grappling with regrets, you know, that he hadn't taken opportunities with his wife and with his children and just all these things he's processing. And so I thought, well, I'll, I'll give it another shot. So I leaned over and so said, I think, I think I know the, the answer to walk you through this sort of stuff. And so I grabbed the button and I pushed it. That was easy. And you, and you know what? He died three months later. And I thought, this thing doesn't work. Now, obviously, if you think that I did that in those two counseling situations, then you must think I'm dumber than I look which would be pretty bad, right? I, I, I know how you wise guys are thinking, so I just thought I'd beat you to the punch there. There is no easy button for life or even for office products, you know, for that matter. One of our kids, I'm not sure who it was, if I were guessing, I would say Anna, it sounds totally like her, introduced this phrase uh, into our home, into our vocabulary. I don't know where, where it was picked up, but if our kids think something is simple, that it's, uh, you know, not difficult to do, or if they're willing to do it, you know, just because they're in one of those really, really good moods where they say, okay, mom and dad, I'll do it, they will say to us that something is easy peasy, mac and cheesy. And so all the time now, when, we, you know, stuff's going on, something's pretty simple and easy, we'll say, oh, easy peasy, mac and cheesy, and we do it, you know, we, we're launched uh, into that. 
And you may have noticed this morning that that's my sermon title, is Easy Peasy. And, and you might be a little bit confused, going, no, wait a second, I've been here before and I've heard Curtis preach, and he never tells us anything is easy in the Christian life. As a matter of fact, you've probably heard me say on numerous occasions and in various ways that it's not easy trying to live as fully surrendered followers of Jesus Christ. And I stick by that statement, that it's not easy. It is not uh, simple and without challenges to try to live as fully surrendered followers of Jesus Christ. However, I do want you to understand and to know that there is one part, one step, one component of salvation that is very simple. It is not complex, and to put in a very simple word that people can understand, it's quite easy as a matter of fact. Now, before you start this whole mental debate and arguing about semantics and, and you know, pulling the scripture verses or, you know, standing up and yelling, die heretic or whatever like that, please listen to all I have to say this morning and then we can converse when it's over. But I want us to start back in Numbers chapter 21 to understand this very important component of our salvation. In Numbers chapter 21, the nation of Israel, the Israelites, are wandering in the wilderness as punishment for not going into the promised land. God had led them to the promised land, said, I've given this to you, go and take it. So they sent 12 spies into the land to do a recon trip. Well, the 12 spies came back and said, the land is great, except for this one problem. <clears throat> The people who are living in the land currently that we have to overcome and have to defeat in battle in order to occupy the land. They said they're huge, they're giants. They said we look like grasshoppers in our own eyes. And if we go to war with them, they will squish us like a grasshopper. We can't go and take over the promised land because of the people who are living there. Ten of the twelve spies gave that report and said, this is what's going on. Two of the twelve spies, Joshua and Caleb, said, yeah, the people are big. They're scary looking. But you know what? God told us it's our land. He told us to go in possession. So God's got this. Let's go do it. Well, they took a vote. And Joshua and Caleb were outvoted ten to two. But in this instance, the majority was wrong because God had clearly told them, this is what I want you to do. Therefore, as punishment for not going into and, and taking the promised land, as God had commanded a very clear act of disobedience, their punishment was that they were going to have to wander for 40 years in the wilderness while the entire generation of adults died off and wouldn't get to go see the promised land except for Joshua and Caleb, because they had said, God can do this. God will give us the promised land. Does it tick you off when you're proven wrong? Do you get just a little bit angry, if nothing else on the inside, even if you don't show it on the outside when that happens, when somebody shows that you were wrong about something? Does it make you grumpy, irritable, a little bit snotty or whiny? When somebody proves that you're wrong, raise your hand if the person next to you responds that way. I'm just, I'm just kidding. <laughs> Definitely right here. The Israelites were grumpy. They were frustrated. They were angry about this punishment, about what had transpired 
because of their disobedience to God. And they're moping around in the wilderness. They're dragging their feet. They're, they're being belligerent. They're whining about stuff. They are absolutely making Moses' life miserable because of the punishment that they are having to endure. They're, they're mumbling under their breath about Moses' leadership. They're, they're mumbling under their breath about God as if God can't hear, right? Well, God did hear their whining. He did hear their complaining, and he didn't like it. And because of their uh, frustration and their reaction at the discipline that was brought against them, uh, you know, God was upset that they sinned in their reaction to being disciplined. You know, I, I've seen this with my kids when they get in trouble and they're being disciplined. You can watch by their body language. I mean, I can just see it coming over them. And I've told them on several occasions, I can see where this is going. Let me just tell you, it's better for you to accept the discipline and to stop right here. Go take a time out and cool yourself off because if you continue down this path, it's going to get worse. All right? I mean, I can see it coming over them that they don't like the discipline. I'm like, just receive the discipline and let's start over, all right? And, well, the children of Israel, they weren't receiving their discipline well, and God punishes them because of their reaction to the discipline they're receiving for, dis, for their disobedience and not going into the promised land. So I want to read to you, and that, I just want to basically walk through this because I think it's very simple to understand. Uh, Numbers chapter 21, verse 4. From Mount Hor, they set out by the way to the Red Sea to go around the land of Edom. And the people became impatient on the way. And the people spoke against God and against Moses. Why have you brought us up out of Egypt to die in the wilderness? For there's no food and no water, and we loathe this worthless food. Do you see why they were called the children of Israel? Don't they sound like, like a group of whining, complaining kids here? That they were hungry, they were thirsty, they didn't have food. God gave them food, and then what they do? They started whining, complaining about the food that they got. We don't like this food. We wanted some other food. And so there, there's just all this complaining, this grumbling that's taking place among the, the, the Israelites. Verse 6, Then the Lord sent fiery serpents among the people, and they bit the people, so that, men, so that many people of Israel died. And the people came to Moses and said, look at this realization they all of a sudden had. We have sinned. Oh, really? Came to that conclusion. Uh, we have sinned, they said, for we have spoken against the Lord and against you. Pray to the Lord that he take away the serpents from us. So Moses prayed for the people. And the Lord said to Moses, make a fiery serpent and set it on a pole. And everyone who is bitten when he sees it shall live. So Moses made a bronze serpent and set it on a pole. And if a serpent bit anyone, he would look at the bronze serpent and live. Now, you're confused on the details here. This is a pretty simple story to understand what just happened and, and the instruction that God gave to Moses. Well, I want to point out a couple of quick things, and then I want us to kind of make a beeline back over to the Gospel of John. First... I recognize that God disciplines and God pours out his wrath and his punishment against sin. We see it in this encounter leading up to Numbers 21. Uh, from their vote to not enter the promised land after God had instructed them to go uh, to complaining about his provision, we see that God punishes sin. When there's sin in our life, we can expect that God is going to punish and bring discipline against that sin because of his nature and who he is. Secondly, did you notice that God left the snakes among the Israelites? What was their request to Moses? Pray to God that he'll take these snakes away from us. 
But you know what? The snakes didn't leave. Now, God gave them provision. He gave them an antidote to overcome the venom from these, these poisonous snakes when they were bitten. But God left the snakes among the people. They're called fiery serpents. Uh, most scholars believe they're called that because it's thought that they would induce a fever that would eventually lead to death when the, uh, in the people who were bitten. But, you know, here's an important thing for us to recognize when we see this parallel in our lives. God doesn't remove all sin and temptation from our lives, does he? We still, we face temptations day in and day out, which could kind of be our fiery serpents. There is always temptation and sin around us that seeks to lash out to strike and to bring uh, consequences into our lives. Now, the good news is God has given us what we need to overcome the spiritual effects of of sin. Through Christ, we can be forgiven and we can be made right. We can be restored with God spiritually. But you know what? Sometimes consequences from our sins remain. But the spiritual effects are taken care of because of Jesus Christ. But here's what I want to sink in from the passage this morning. That when you read back to Numbers chapter 21, the necessary component for healing, the difference between life and death among those who were bitten by these fiery serpents, was belief. It was belief. Very simple word, a very simple idea and truth. Let me demonstrate for you this morning. I, I, need, I need a couple of volunteers. Bruce, since you didn't look up at me, that whole, when I need volunteers, everybody looks down, like if I make eye contact, they look up. So Bruce, why don't, you, why don't you come up here? Let me borrow you for a second. Miss Mary... Let me borrow you for a second, too. You come up here and help me out. I need a couple of volunteers. You all, you all come on up. How are you doing? Good to see you. Well, welcome to the draft. <laughs> you help me out this morning? What was that? You got it. You, you going to help me out this morning? Yeah. All right, let me help you up here. All right, you come up stand up here, Mr. Bruce. You two are now whiny Israelites. All right? Okay. Now, y'all are going to be my whiny Israel. I need, to, I need another person here. You've, you've, you've heard about the movie Snakes on a Plane. Well, this morning I brought a snake on a pole. You all are impressed with my high-tech sermon props, aren't you? Hey, we're paying off a roof, all right? So I got a small budget, all right? So this is, uh, let's just put together. This will be, buddy, would you, would you hold this for me? You can just sit right there. You don't have to even stand up. Just kind of hold that right there. All right. So here's what's going to happen. Don't let that thing get you, buddy, all right? You two just got bitten by fiery serpents. Did, did it hurt? All right, okay. You just, you did. Oh, yeah, Al. You, oh, yeah, I got bitten by fiery serpents. All right. So, Miss Mary, you got bitten by a fiery serpent, and you heard Moses' instructions that God received, that he, he, he made a snake, he put it on a pole, and God said, when you get bitten by a serpent, all you have to do is look at that one. You believed what Moses said, so you looked at that right there, and you're healed and you're going to live. You excited? Yeah. Woo, praise the Lord. All right, she, she's going to live. All right, you're done. Thank you. Thank you very much. Let me, let me help you down here. Good work. Thank you, Miss Mary. Bruce. I don't believe, right? He said, I don't believe, right? That's right. You, you, <laughs> You're, you're a cynic and you're a skeptic. 
the, the thing that goes through your mind is, look, I just got bitten by a snake and there is venom in my body. It is coursing through my veins and it's going to cause death. Therefore, since I have something in my body, I must do something to counteract it. And you, can I chew on tree bark? Do I eat a handful of dirt? Can I eat a bug? Can I mix some juices? Yeah, I'll go wash in the river. Whatever I need. Give me something to do and I'll do it so I can live, right? That, that's kind of your thought process. Because in your mind, it's just too easy. It, it's, what is looking at a snake on a pole going to do for me, right? Because you got venom in your body. So you don't believe, it, you're, you're a skeptic that, that just can't happen that way. Well, Mr. Hardhead, you die. All right? Just because you wouldn't look to the snake on the pole. It just it can't work. It can't be that easy, right? All right, sorry, sorry. It's nice knowing you. All right, thank you. You can go back to your seat. Appreciate it. Now, good, good job. Oh, watch out now. Let me get you. <laughs> You've been bitten. Look, look, see? I mean, do you see how simple and uncomplex that was in this encounter? If you believed, you looked to the serpent on the pole and you lived. If you didn't believe for whatever reason and refused to look, you died. Now, what do you think the lesson in this was? Believe and look. It's simple. It's easy. But people had a hard time dealing with that. Let me just say this straight to the point. When it comes to salvation, many, many, many people believe there's got to be something more to it than just believing in Jesus. Well, I got to do something else. And unfortunately, in the Baptist church, you know what we've kind of led people to do because we kind of emphasize a certain uh, a certain act of obedience that people follow in baptism. You know, Jesus gave us the two ordinances, so we practice baptism by immersion. So people say, well, in the Baptist church, well, when I'm baptized, that's when I'm saved. You know, that act of being baptized is what, you know, washes away my sins and cleanses me, but it's not. It's not the act of baptism that brings about salvation. The thief on the cross wasn't baptized, and Jesus said, today you'll be with me in heaven. But people say, well, it's baptism. But there's this whole long list, and you don't need me to go through this list of things that people say, well, you must do in order to be saved. you, you got to go to church. you got to study your lesson. you got to read your Bible. you got to pray. you got to give. you got to serve. you got to, and you just put on the list whatever it is that you've got to do these things in order for you to be saved. But it's not true. It's very simple. It's very easy. You believe in Jesus. You believe that he died for you and you look to him with this belief in your heart. And the Bible says that you pass from death into life. You become a child of God. You become a new creature, a new creation in Jesus Christ through belief. It's really that simple. And I say this with full confidence and assurance because of what Jesus himself said about this passage from Numbers 21 in the context of his death on the cross. Flip over to John chapter 3, and then we'll hit John 12 in just a moment. John chapter 3. If you're using the Pew Bible uh, to save you some time, it is on page 887. John chapter 3. 
This is Jesus as he is teaching someone, Nicodemus. Nicodemus was a religious leader. He came to Jesus under the cover of darkness. He didn't want people to know that he was going and even having a conversation with Jesus because Nicodemus knew he would lose a lot if people saw him even speaking with Jesus, let alone identifying himself as a follower of Christ. And so Nicodemus comes to Jesus under the cover of darkness and he asks Jesus, what is required for a person to follow you? What is, what is required for a person to be made right with God? And understand that Nicodemus, being a Pharisee, a religious leader, came from the school of thought that you had to do certain things. It was all about the rules and the regulations and obeying those things is what made you right with God. So that's his background. That's his history. So he comes to Jesus and said, there's some really awesome things that you're doing. It's new. It's different. It's wonderful. I'm very curious about it. What must I do to know God to be made right with him? And Jesus says in John chapter 3, you must be born again. And Nicodemus' mind goes to these actions, this doing thing, and says, I think that's going to be a problem because now that I'm a full-grown male, I don't think my mom's going to be agreeable to that. He's in this whole, what must I do? And he's thinking through this physical action of being born again. And so Jesus speaks and elaborates a little bit more, and he says something to identify the kind of faith, the kind of belief that's, that's required for salvation. And he says in John chapter 3, verse 14, and as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, we just saw that, so must the Son of Man be lifted up. And look at what he says, that whoever, what, believes in him may have eternal life. Do you see that connection? Do you see that parallel that Jesus paints that when he is lifted up, and how was Jesus lifted up? Not as a snake on the end of a pole, but as a human being mercilessly, ruthlessly nailed to a cross. That when he was lifted up, that whoever looks and believes and accepts that his death was for them may have, Jesus said, eternal life. Flip over to John 12, a few pages to your right, where Jesus once again uh, draws us back to this imagery, this picture of being lifted up and salvation being made possible through that. John chapter 12, verse 27. Remember, Jesus is approaching uh, his, his betrayal, his arrest, and ultimately his crucifixion. Verse 27, now is my soul troubled, and what shall I say? Father, save me from this hour. He says, but for this purpose, I have come to this hour. So he's saying, should I be delivered from this hour, from this painful death? No, Jesus said, it's for this purpose that I came. He says, Father, glorify your name. So in, in the face of great uh, trial, great suffering, Jesus' prayer was that God would be glorified. Look at God's response. Then a voice from heaven came and said, I have glorified it and I will glorify it again. We'll talk some more a little bit later in this chapter about glorifying God. And remember, our key truth and the idea of potential is we cannot live up to our full potential in Christ if we seek to glorify anyone or anything other than Jesus Christ. And here we see this idea, this concept of glorifying God being spoken of by both Jesus and his heavenly Father. Verse 29, the crowd that stood there and heard it said that it had thundered. Others said an angel has spoken to him. Jesus answered, this voice has come for your sake, not mine. 
Now is the judgment of this world. Now will the ruler of this world be cast out. And I, when I am lifted up from the earth, will draw all people to myself. He said this to show by what kind of death he was going to die. In this passage, Jesus highlights for us three effects that his death and his resurrection would have. First, it glorified God. Jesus' death and his resurrection glorified God. He said the intent, the purpose, the goal of his life was to glorify God. We say, well, how did that happen? Well, it happened that way. It happens that God is glorified because we realize that we have sinned against God and we're separated from him. Jesus came and died as our substitute so we could believe in him and have a right relationship with God. God provided the way of salvation for us to be made right with God. And when we recognize that God did all of that of his own initiative and in his own power, we didn't do anything in that process. God, you know, originated and thought up the plan. God designed the plan. God completed the plan and then offers us salvation because of what he has done. When we realize all that God has done and we receive that gift of salvation, we look to God and say, thank you. Thank you for loving and caring for me enough and desiring a relationship that you would go through all of this trouble, that you would provide everything necessary so I could become one of your children. We thank God and we glorify him for what he has provided through Jesus Christ. So God is glorified through Jesus' death and his resurrection. Secondly, the cross is the fence that determines whether people experience God's judgment and his punishment against sin and disobedience in their lives, or whether or not they experience the grace and the mercy and freedom from the penalty and the consequences of our sins. See, here's the thing. There is no fence sitting when it comes to salvation through Jesus Christ. There's no sitting on the fence. You remember our two snake-bitten Israelites here a few minutes ago? One lived and one died. Because of their belief or their disbelief. that There's no in-between in that. You either believe and receive salvation and God's grace and mercy and forgiveness of your sins and new life in him and eternal life in his presence. Or you reject that message and are ex- are experience separation from God for eternity because of the consequences and the penalty of our sins. And if, and if a person refuses to believe for whatever reason, that it's, just, it's just too simple. It's just too easy. I've got to do something in return. I, you know, that go to church or, you know, give or be back. I've got to, you know, I believe in Jesus and blank means I'm saved. No, you believe in Jesus, period. That's how we receive salvation. Believing in Jesus, period. If anyone ever begins to talk to you about it's necessary to be saved, to have Jesus and blank, stop them right there and say, no, it's just Jesus, That's all that we need for salvation is Jesus himself. But if a person refuses to believe that, well, it's just, I don't believe in the whole God thing. It's just too easy, too simple. I'm a good enough person or I'm not a good person. For whatever excuse we may give, if we refuse to believe in Christ and Christ alone for salvation, then we die in our sins and experience the eternal consequences of that. And the cross is the fence for determining which side we're on. God's judgment and his wrath against sin or his grace and his mercy and forgiveness for our sins. 
Another effect of the cross is that it defeated Satan's ultimate weapon, which is death. Satan wielded death as a way to say, when your life is over, then you come and be a part of my kingdom uh, if you've not believed in Christ and received forgiveness for your sins. And so that you were under his rule and his dominion. But Jesus showed us that by believing in him for salvation, that when we experience our physical death on earth, it is nothing more than a doorway passing us from life on this earth into eternal life in heaven with Christ forever. And so he defeated Satan's greatest weapon by showing that death isn't the end. It is simply the beginning of all things eternal in Christ. And so uh, Jesus spoke of defeating the ruler of this world and casting him out. The final effect that the cross has is that its simple message of forgiveness of sins and eternal life draws people to it. It is such a simple message that Jesus said when he is lifted up that he would draw all people to himself. The message of Jesus is a message of hope and peace and forgiveness and restoration. And you know, it is so freeing to realize that in stark contrast to every other world religion, uh, to every other place and position in life, there is absolutely nothing you have to do or nothing you can do to earn or be worthy of the salvation that Jesus has provided for you. Jesus did everything to provide salvation. All we have to do is believe that message and receive him as our Savior. I mean, doesn't that just feel liberating in and of itself to know that, that, it, that it just lifts the burden and pressure off that you don't have to claw and scrape your way to salvation? You don't have to outperform anybody. You don't have to outsell anybody. You don't have to be a better person than your spouse or your neighbor or your parents. Any of those things. There is nothing you have to do, nothing you can do to earn your salvation or be worthy of the salvation that Jesus has provided for you. But because of God's incredible love and his desire to have a relationship with us, God has provided a way that we can be his children. All we have to do is simply receive Christ's death as a substitute for us. And that's it. This morning, I want to focus our time of response on, on two very simple things. If you're here and you have never believed in Jesus for salvation, then as you've seen today, Christ is calling, he's been lifted up, and he calls you to look and believe that his death was for you so that you can become a child of God. And I want to invite you today, if you've never made that decision in your life in a very real and very personal way, to let that be the decision that you would make today, to believe that Jesus died to pay the price for your sins as your substitute, to be the antidote to the consequences of sin that you deserve. But I know that many of you here today, you are believers. You have believed in Jesus, and you're seeking to journey and follow through uh, in obedience to Christ. And as you know, we've looked at this morning, salvation is easy to receive. I've established that this morning. But being a fully devoted follower of Jesus Christ, being a disciple of Jesus, is not. I kind of liken it to this. You know, if you uh, are an individual that is not a part of the military community... You can wear the shoes that you want, the clothes that you want, you cut your hair the way you want, you eat what you want, you get up when you want, you go to bed when you want, you do what you want to do. You are free, right, to, to do whatever you want to do. 
But when you sign up in any of the, the branches of our military service and you sign on the dotted line and you show up to come under their, uh, their provision and under their direction and instruction, do you have the freedom to do all of those things any longer? No, 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 no. You, you wear the clothes they give you and the shoes they give you and you go to bed when they tell you and you get up when they tell you and you eat the food that they provide for you and you do all of these things because you say, now I have submitted myself to your authority under your instruction for this time and season. And maybe it's a couple of years and maybe you renew, maybe it's a long, long window, but you give yourself and say, I submit and surrender myself to be under your authority and your instruction. Believing in Jesus is all that's required to receive salvation, to be saved from the consequences of our sins. But we often talk about two very distinct words that come as part of our salvation. It's Jesus as our Savior, that he saved us from our sins, and then making Jesus the Lord of our life. Lord means that Jesus is our master. He's the one that's in control of our lives. And once we've surrendered ourselves to him, that's where the journey of obedience and following after his call and being a, a fully devoted follower of Christ really begins the lifelong journey of trying to grow to be like Christ and learning about him and living our life as he lived his life and as he set an example for us. And if you're here as a believer today, I know because I'm where you are that for all of us, we realize there's more that Christ is calling us to in greater levels of obedience and faithfulness and surrender to him. So maybe you're here and you're like, yeah, you know what? I, I, I'm not where I need to be. And God's been doing this work and I know I need to deal with some things in my life. And so my invitation to you this morning, is kind of like these fiery serpents. Remember, God didn't take those things away. They were still there. They were still biting people. They were still challenges to them day in and day out. And we're in a world that's filled with sin and temptation and things that distract us from and the ways of God and things that seem to weigh us down and keep us from being obedient and faithful to Christ. And maybe your prayer today is, God, I want to be free from these things. I want to be a more fully devoted follower. I want to fully surrender myself more and more to your will and your work and your plan in my life. And God will give you what you need. He will guide you and direct you as to what those steps are. So if you're a believer and say, yeah, I've, I've got the whole salvation thing. It's this living with Christ as Lord of my life, where, where I, I know I've still got room for growth, then today say, Lord, I want to surrender myself more fully. I want to die to self, as we've been talking about the last couple of weeks, so that you can live more fully in my life. Here's the prayer this morning. Jesus, I want to lift you up in everything that I do, in my workplace, in my home, in my extracurricular activities, in my relationships. Jesus, I want to lift you up and exalt you in my life. Why? Why is it important that we do that? What did Jesus say? When I am lifted up, I will what? Draw all people to myself. So I want our prayer to be, Lord, help me lift you up in my life because when we lift up Christ, he draws people to himself. So let that be our prayer this morning if you're a believer walking with Christ. Finally, last thing for us in our time of response. We started this series uh, talking about apples and I had a bunch of apples. And I encourage you to take an apple 
Pray for a person or two or three or four that you know uh, you have relationships with, but you may not know about their spiritual condition. I ask you to begin praying for those people and to take that apple and in some way establish a relationship or connect with them relationally and invite them to church and begin fostering that relationship to be able to share Christ. Well, I want to come back to that. Maybe you have been praying for that person. Maybe you took that apple and you built that bridge and you connected But now, about a month later, I want to call us back to that and say, once again today, whoever these people were that you wrote down, and maybe they're still in your Bible on the note sheet we used that day, or maybe you just have put them in your prayer journal. But I want us to, once again today, pray for these people that we know that we're not certain about their spiritual status, their relationship with Jesus Christ. And I want us to pray, once again, that God will give us opportunities, that he will open doors and help us build bridges to connect with them relationally, that through those relationships, we might be able to share the very simple message of the gospel. So if you need to believe in Christ this morning for salvation, then I want to invite you to come and speak to one of our pastors so that you can place your faith and your trust in Christ for salvation. But believers, maybe you need to pray, Lord, I want to lift you up in more of my life so that you'll draw people to yourself. And you can do that in your seats, or you may want to come to the altar and spend some time here symbolically saying, Lord, I come to this altar and I lay myself down. Paul said that we need to be living sacrifices. And you say, I give myself, Lord, as a sacrifice to you. But for all of us, join me in praying that God will give us opportunities, more and more opportunities to build relationships with people in our lives to share the very simple message of the gospel that Jesus died for us to pay the price for our sins. That if we would look and believe in him, we can be saved and forgiven of our sins. We can experience eternal life and we can have the Holy Spirit of God living within us to guide and direct us and helping us live our lives for Christ so that more and more people may hear and know and respond to the gospel message. Would you join me in prayer?